Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I was completely spoiled at work because I had a $70,000 full motion rig with an 85-inch 4K <laughs> monitor. Right. Uh, Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me, it's about you, and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call 224-484-7733 or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest, Nick Lang, works at Amazon Games and is a veteran of the industry. He started out as an artist with roots in illustration, working in comics, and drawing monsters for Dungeons and Dragons. Nick made his way into video games in 1999 as a UX design and concept artist. Over the years, his role evolved in design and then into production. He's been working for places like Electronic Arts, Microsoft, and now Amazon Games as a senior publishing producer. During that time, Nick's been focused on production and everything it means. He's given talks on the subject at GDC Europe, universities, and a number of other trade shows such as Siege in Atlanta and MIGS in Montreal. This is one of the longer episodes and has a little bit of sound clipping in a few spots. But hang with me here. It's full of great ideas and stories. I think you'll really enjoy it. Plus, don't forget to share if you like it. Hey, Nick. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. No problem. Glad to be here. Finally. Yeah, it all worked out. It's uh, <laughs> excited to have you on. So kind of tell me, what's your uh, current role right now? So these days, and then granted, I'm into week 10 of a new job. I'm the senior publishing producer for Amazon Games. Cool. Basically, what that job is, is to make sure that it's to work with the game teams and make sure that they can they have everything that they need to ship the game. I think a lot of us are eagerly anticipating Amazon shipping a couple of games and I'm part of that plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it could be that could be anything. These days it's uh coordination with central technologies. As you can imagine, Amazon's a pretty big company. 
Right. Refining marketing plans, working on vision statements, and also just sort of keeping everybody honest because there's a bunch of people that it takes a lot of people to make a game these days. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And you're based in Seattle area, I'm guessing? Yeah, it's interesting. So like I said, week 10 of a new job, but I feel like I'm starting three jobs at once and soon to drop, <laughs> soon to start a fourth job because uh, I'm based in Seattle. I've been here for five years. Mm-hmm. Prior to this job, I was working at Microsoft for turn 10. Mm. There you go. But my home base is in Seattle, but my boss is in San Francisco and that's where a lot of the Amazon game leadership is. So I spend okay. time down there. And one of the game studios I spend the most time with is in Irvine, California. So I fly down there for the projects that they've got going on, most notably New World and the uh, recently announced Lord of the Rings. Okay. Oh, that's right. That just, that just came out like, they just announced it yeah. a couple of days ago, right? Yeah. They just announced it. Um, I think we're safe talking about something that was uh, publicly announced in multiple countries. <laughs> but, yeah, I heard about it. And this will air a little bit later. So yeah, we got some buffer. So it's all good. Yeah. And cool. then um, there's also the Amazon Game Studio down in San Diego that I'll be spending a little bit of time with as we uh, work our way through some new concepts. Interestingly hmm. enough, a little bit of trivia, I am based in Seattle, but I do not work with the games that were made in Seattle. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. There's the Crucible game and the, uh, the game that came out for the Grand Tour. Okay. I don't have anything to do with either of those. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You're based there geography wise, but it, yeah, the places you work are further south. So, oh, that's cool. So, how did you start in the video game industry? It's always good to ask folks that. Yeah. It's a long, kind of convoluted uh, story. I can shorten it as much as possible, <laughs> but I always set up the caveat, especially to some of your listeners that might be, you know, just trying to get the lay of the land and interested in starting their, their first job and how to, you know, I talk about breaking in and things like that. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you my story, but don't do it this way. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to do it this way anymore. Right. I started out, I was living a life where I was probably going to be a wrestling coach or a firefighter or a policeman because that's what my family does. Yeah. Legacy. Right. Exactly. Just kind of made sense. But I got an acceptance letter to an art school in New Jersey called the Joe Kubert School. And they accept about um, they accept about 100 students a year and they graduate about 30 and it's focused completely on comic books. Oh, wow. My first job, my first real job out of, out of college was working for comic books. I had a couple of contracts with Marvel and Dark Horse at the time. Mm-hmm. Just doing background work and clean up and a couple of um, playing cards and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, but school paid my bills being a comic book artist. The year before I graduated, this is kind of hard for a lot of people to get. Marvel went bankrupt and <laughs> shut down fifty percent of their publications, so they basically laid off half of their staff. Wow, when was this? What year was that? Yeah, that would have been nineteen ninety six or nineteen ninety seven. Okay, yeah, and I think that was the same year that DC was sold to Time Warner and then to AOL. And then to Warner Brothers or something like that. So they kind of stopped all their production. Wow. So here I am, a freshly, freshly trained, ready to go comic book artist, starting to get a foothold. And then everything starts, the, the ground slips from underneath me. Yeah. And um, I fall back on graphic design. Mm-hmm. Graphic design is a, is a worthy pursuit and a noble art and craft. But unfortunately, what happens is a lot of failed illustrators end up in graphic design. And, and I think that's how I got into it. 
Okay. There are plenty of people that were better at it than me. But one of the things that I could do is I could use Quark at the time, Adobe Photoshop, and Adobe Illustrator. And mm-hmm. back then, these were things that not everybody was able to do. Right. So I did that for a little while. I was still doing a little bit, bit of uh, freelance work. I worked for uh, Wizards of the Coast doing dragons mm-hmm. for Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. But my first job in games was because I could use those software packages and because I had a graphic design element to my portfolio, I was hired as a UX designer. And the very first day I showed up, I sat on a cardboard box and somebody gave me, <laughs> gave me a stack of VHS tapes to learn how to use Adobe After Effects. Ah, okay. VHS tapes, After Effects, a program that I couldn't use, but was still hired because of the programs that I could use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now... I am a UX designer. And less than a week into that, I realized that I wasn't really a UX designer so much as I was a game designer. I was working on a trivia game and the elements were all UX. So Yeah, right. So that process led me to being an artist and a lead artist and a game designer. And I think because I typed faster than most of the artists in the art bullpen, Mm -hmm. I became the lead artist and then I became the producer and then EA came in and bought the company that I worked for. And what I've company was that? That was Hypnotics. So at Hypnotics, I did stuff like uh, Deer Avenger mm. and Outlaw Volleyball, Outlaw Golf, Outlaw Tennis. Oh, it was like in Jersey, right? No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we were in Little Falls, New Jersey, kind of like upper, so North Central. Yeah. Yep. I worked there till about 2004, and I did. I tried to count once, but I, it was over 50, and certainly approaching 60 advertising and edutainment games on browsers and DVDs, CD-ROMs, all that. I did just so much game. Some of the last little tiny projects I worked on were for the Game Boy SP. We were super excited because it had the backlight. (laughs) The original one didn't have a light. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were still doing hand-drawn 2D sprites and things like that. Mm -hmm. Totally different because the very next, uh, I guess there was a few... 3D jobs. But the very next job I picked up when we moved to, I operated as a lead designer for EA Sports AFL, the Arena Football League. Ah. And then went to NFL Street 3, which is one of my favorite games. One of the favorite projects I ever worked on. Okay. EA has a, has a pretty detailed and set expectations, pretty high expectations for producers. And it tends to be slightly different from what I've experienced in the rest of the industry. Mm-hmm. And from then, it was just sort of I was at the races and in the and in the game industry from 2004 at EA on. Yeah, long way to go. I didn't plan on being here, but here here I am. Right, 15 years later. Yeah. 15 years later. Yeah, exactly. Another a, an interesting thing was even though I went to art school, my thesis project was supposed to contain elements of all types of classes that we had, so writing and storyboards, of course, sequential comic book art and a business plan and things like that. Mm-hmm. I did a video game pitch. <laughs> took all this you know, concept art and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it wasn't necessarily because I thought I was going to video games were a thing I was going to do. It was because I really tried to differ, differentiate myself from the rest of the class that we're all doing graphic novel treatments and storyboards and things like that. Right. Right. So maybe, um, maybe I knew. <laughs> yeah. Premonition. There you go. So, wow. That's a interesting uh, path in. And then how long were you at EA? Let's see. So Hypnotics was 1999 to 2004. EA was 2004 to 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And while I was while I was there, in Orlando, right? That was in Orlando. Yep. I worked yeah. on I worked on everything 
everything that that studio put out during that time. Madden and NASCAR, those those what I know that are down there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we did uh, AFL, NFL Street, NASCAR, Madden. Even though the studio is known for Madden, it did a bunch of other things. Now, I would help out Madden from time to time, but mm-hmm. it was but I managed to never be assigned directly to it. Not for a very long anyway. Yeah. We did EA Sports MMA, which is another one of my favorite projects. And then for about two mm-hmm. years, I ran the incubation group at EA Sports. Oh, wow. Uh, that was new IP, new technology. The Connect had just come out. Nobody knew how to do the Connect. That We were doubling down on making mobile games for IP that we controlled. And nobody understood the form factor or the interaction controls of a phone. They mm-hmm. were doing that sort of automatic port, you know, the digital. Right. D- yeah. And pretty much every version, the digital D-pad is the wrong choice. Yeah. I know there are some successful examples out there, but boy, that's not the way I would. That's not the way where I would start. Right, right. Yeah, that was fun for a while. And then um, we started doing games as a service and started working, started sort of applying centralized service groups to maintaining these games at EA. And then Mm -hmm. I got a phone call at uh, Microsoft to be part of the Forza franchise, which was something that I really couldn't turn down because the Forza franchise was... can't turn that down. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal to me because even though most of my family, like I said before, were like cops and firefighters and teachers and civil servants, my father Mm -hmm. for his entire career was in professional racing. Wow. Some of my favorite father-son moments involved Forza Motorsport. So yeah. we took the move. And I'd been at EA for about 10 years, mm-hmm. which was a pretty good one. I love my time there. And I'm still very close friends with many people there. But yeah. this was a good opportunity. And I took it. Then after five years of that job, I feel like I made my mark and I did as much as I could there. So I moved on and, and Amazon's looking to ship some games. So I signed up. Well, actually, oh, they called me and I signed up. <laughs> right. No, that's a great run. And yeah, Forza, excellent driving series. I played that with my sons when they were younger. And yeah, I had the steering wheel and we get it set up on the 360 and kind of play and a little TV tray to get the steering wheel going and add the pedals and stuff. So yeah, that, I spent yeah, some time with my right. sons when they were younger playing that. I was completely spoiled at work because I had a $70,000 full motion rig with an 85-inch 4K <laughs> monitor. Right. It was about 25 feet away from my office, so... <laughs> like right yeah, i'm just gonna go test this out here with the new uh 911 gt3 and uh yeah see how this uh seat brings looking here all right exactly uh, right and then i would always have to take a break before i drive home because i would come right. out of the an animal like yeah. just like a hell on wheels right like bring it i know i know i, I can't yeah. handle these g's i am fearless <laughs> i've been trained <laughs> I have my license, license exactly to speed. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, man, that's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you wish you'd known when you'd started? Getting back back at the beginning and, and kind of where you're at now, like, wow, I wish I'd known that. Yeah. What do I wish I had known back when I started? It's interesting because I've got an answer for you, but I, I also think that this, oh boy, this is terrible too, because I think some of my success actually was from not knowing. There were some jobs that I signed up for that I had no business signing up for. And ignorance okay. was like my shield and my safety net. Um, <laughs> Beginner's mind, right? You're just like, all right, let's just do it, right? For I some mean, stuff. Dunning-Kruger effect in full, showed up in full force. <laughs> to be honest, I was successful in some of these things. Like the story about being involved with NASCAR was 
pretty classic EA where things were going wrong for a while. So Mm -hmm. they basically decapitated the leadership team and then called me over and they said, all right, your turn. And I was like, you got it. I know how to fix this. And I just didn't, I didn't know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But I was successful. I was ultimately successful and we shipped and the team is, team is good. And I still stay in contact with some of those people as well. That's like a measurement to me of how, of how, how well I did as a leader, but also how well that team met their calling. Yeah. The chemistry that remains afterwards is actually really, turns out it's really important. Definitely. But I was successful and that's a little bit of survivorship bias saying, yeah, sign up for everything and then just go ahead and try it out because there's probably a hundred people that said yes to jobs that they weren't ready for. And then they're just no longer in the industry or they've never been able to recover from something like that. Yeah. But there's definitely a thing that I wish that I knew, but when I started, I think I sent a note out to you, which is enemies are of no use. Now in a leadership position, you tend to say, you tend to have the responsibility of making calls. And usually those calls are made in the absence of empirical data. Because frankly, if we knew everything, we wouldn't need people to make calls. Yeah, exactly. Part of our job in games, especially when it comes down to project management, is to make sure that we know everything so that the solutions are clear. Maybe not only one solution, but at least the solutions are clear because we know how long something will take. We know how long something, you know, we know what could go wrong. Those kind of things help us make those decisions. But eventually, as a leader, you need to make a call. Right. And that's good because it's going to get, I think that's actually a really hard job for a robot to eventually do. (laughs) And then again, I could be completely wrong because they just, AI can do everything now. (laughs) Elon Musk is going to figure it out. We're we're all dead. (laughs) Well, we'll just take longer vacations, I think, is what they're promising. anyway. Okay. So, yeah, enemies are of no use. When you make a call, you're almost always making a call that's going against somebody else's judgment. Mm-hmm. And to say, this is the way it's got to be because I'm the one that's accountable for it. And it's my decision to make. And I don't have time to explain to you my, my backup, my context, or any of the basis for my decision. Just do what I say. I don't know that I ever fell prey to the do what I say problem that happens a lot in leadership. But there were certainly times where I fell prey to the, I don't have time to explain it to you fully. So here's a short version. I hope that's good enough, you know? Yeah. And even if that was good enough, 50%, 70, 80% of the time, there were still people that I ended up having conflict with that I didn't need to. And that ultimately affected some of the successes that I had over the long term, rather than just one singular Mm. decision here or there. Just kind of speaking of advice, like what advice would you give someone looking to get their first job? Yeah, if you're getting if you're getting into the industry, I'm assuming that you have already taken a path that's either through QA or you've gone to school. If you're trying to break into development, it is difficult because it's competitive because a lot of people do want to be there. So yeah. my advice is of course to be friendly and to be be interested and be engaged, but Try to be self-aware and don't be creepy about it. I think we've all got stories about the kid that emails you constantly or finds your profile <laughs> on LinkedIn and just tells, writes you this screed about his great game idea. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't help, right? You don't want to be part of that. No. But to be helpful is really important. And to be good to work with, kind of going back to my last comment, conflict isn't worth the fallout. Mm-hmm. To be helpful is critical, but also to have humility, be self-aware. Understand that you're starting out and everything that you learn, whether it's good for what you want to do ultimately or not, 
you mm-hmm. still need to learn those things. So yeah, it's part of the path. Going to school. Yeah. Especially your first couple of years, there's still plenty to learn. And even now after, I mean, we're at 20 years for me, or at least pretty, yeah, 20 years. So yeah. I'm still learning. And even this job that I do now is different from the job I did before. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. So it's like you have to enjoy the practice to be good at the craft. And I think learning, especially in the role of production where I have to have, I have to be competent in so many different areas. I think that's yeah. super valuable. So much more going on in production now. The teams are so much bigger. The budgets are bigger. There's so much more uh, specialized niches and things to manage. And um, yeah, you have to have that the kind of growth mindset and be willing to be humble, learn from your mistakes and and have discipline and work hard and things because otherwise, yeah, your your path's not gonna gonna go for a long time. I mean, technology is changing all the time. I've seen I've seen three, three different business models in twenty years. So you mm-hmm. know, you never know what's going to happen in two years. So get ready right. to learn the new thing. Right. Although I do think that eventually all of us old timers are going to go and make old time games, which I kind of think is what the indie scene is trying to do for us is give us a nice landing pay. Landing <laughs> yeah. It's like, come back here, get back to these or the simpler graphics and just focus more on the gameplay and yeah, do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. I've just read an article on Gamma Suture that was a rehash of something published in 2004 about a Madden audio mm-hmm. director writing this article about how he's spending he's spending money filming Madden for 2004. This mm-hmm. is before I got to EA. And it was even, actually, this is way before that. One of the points in his article was that this is one of the most expensive weeks of development. We're going to spend nearly $100,000 to film <laughs> John Madden. And I thought, wow, $100,000 is just a shade over what my catering budget was at Microsoft. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that was like groundbreaking back then. And now it's oh, just yeah. like, yeah, yeah. no. And yeah, you see projects with three or $400 million budgets and then another three or $400 million for advertising and marketing and, you know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it's just, it's crazy. It's a space race, this arms war of one upping and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's it wild. totally Totally is, especially the chase for horsepower and graphic fidelity. That's mm-hmm. just, it's funny because I think for probably 10 years, I've been saying, well, they're going to stall out on graphics eventually. Moore's law or Tesla's law or something kicks in. Yeah. And then we'll go ahead and like, we will then revert our craft to what we can do. You know, the Renaissance painters, once they figured out how to make oil paint, then it was all about how good are you with the brush and the paint that we already know is as good as oil paint could ever be. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> contained at that point where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it is now, it just keeps going further and further and further <laughs> and doing more stuff on the GPU and all those kind of things. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, never ending. Right. What about advice for um, someone in their career in production? Somebody like yourself that, you know, working right now as uh, an assistant producer or associate producer, or, you know, maybe a producer wants to go to that next stage. Like what kind of production advice do you have? Yeah. I think if you're on a path that you enjoy and that you, um, that you're interested in sort of moving on through, take production as an example, in my experience, you're going to want to really understand the next step. A lot of people think they want to be say an executive producer, But once they get a sense of what that job is, and frankly, it's different depending on the studio that you're at, you might find out that that's not the job for you. And I see time and time again, 
just a, a barrage of people that have got themselves to a position that they no longer enjoy. There's always the joke about how I used to make games. And right. I think sort of that, that black humor kind of, I used to make games, but now I'm in this job and I don't, or whatever I, whatever sort of I used to do, mm-hmm. there was a value that I assigned to it. And maybe it is actually part of how I value myself. And now I no longer do it. Don't get yourself caught up there. Make yeah. sure that that job is the one that you want. And to be honest, maybe that job in another studio is the right one for you. And there's a little bit of, a little bit of stretching that goes along with that. But mm-hmm. just make sure that you really understand the role and that you want to be part of it. Right. I think people chase titles. Certainly people chase money. And then the problem is once you have that title or that money, it gets really difficult because those are the important things. It gets difficult to find yourself in a job where you are most effective and thus most happy and doing what we all want to do, which is making great games for people and just building entertainment. Yeah. I think this is really common with the focus disciplines, like being an engineer. And yeah. then you're like, yeah, definitely. I want to be the technical director because that's what, you know, because I'm smart. Sure. Yeah. You're probably smart. You get there and then you're like, I don't write code anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm in meetings all the time and I'm miserable and I don't like dealing with management issues. And, and then oh, you're yeah. frustrated and pissed off, but then you have the title and, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. And I think part of that too is, you know, companies evolve and they get bigger and they, they look at their paths. It's like, you need to have like a path forward for individual contributors and then like a path forward into management. Yes. And if you are like a really bright, crazy smart engineer that wants more recognition, more responsibility, more, yes. more money, give them a path so they can keep doing that and what they do well and not be like, I have to go into management now if I want to get a raise and I'm going to be miserable sitting oh, in meetings yeah. all the time instead of just oh, sitting yeah. there with my headphones on writing code, which is what I love oh. to do. And it's even, it even gets worse because if, if you didn't know if you wanted to do it, or if you get there and you find out that you're bad at it, especially something like management, your sphere mm-hmm. of influence has now grown and now you're miserable and you're probably bad at it. And now you're making seven, eight, ten, <laughs> three people miserable. And Everyone else around you is miserable. And they're like, this is, and you're not disaster. doing what you were really good at. So your excellent code isn't being written and you're making people miserable, but now you can't say no because you're making another 20 grand a year, you know, blah, 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 gets worse and worse. So I just, I just always caution people to be like, let's be really, really clear what that job is and what your absolute value is and what Mm -hmm. you value about. I think actually one of the best things that happened at EA while I was there was they used to have this path where it'd be like software engineer one, engineer two, engineer three, and then you would go technical director, or development director. And development director was mostly a project manager, but it was yeah. good to have engineers in that role because they're methodical and they can do calendar math in their head and, and they know the work so they can't be hosed. That's right. I, it worked out really well. But what if you didn't want to be an architect or a decision maker? You just wanted to write the most badass optimized code of all time. They didn't mm-hmm. have a path for you. Yeah. So what they did is they created the subject matter expert path. And so mm-hmm. there was like, senior software engineer and one, two, three, and then, you know, it turns into all sorts of crazy stuff, but that way you can have somebody doing what they were trained to do and what they have been compelled to do since they were young and Mm -hmm. at a level. I do remember uh, the first time, so we're kind of dwelling on my time at EA, but I remember having a bunch of engineers report to me and I didn't have any engineering background. I I could hold my own toe to toe with uh, artists and designers and marketing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But when it came to engineers, I, I was kind of, I was starting from the back of the pack. Yeah. And uh, 
this guy, he showed up, he was um, much older than me. And I was like, so, you know, tell me about, you know, which is our first one-on-one. I'm like, tell me about what you do. And he, he basically told a story about how he was a telecom engineer and then became a project manager and then, you know, had 60 people reporting to him. And then he decided uh, he just wanted to write code. And mm-hmm. uh, he was kind of an old timer at EA and they hired him because he was a, um, a C programmer, not a C ah, and not right, a C, right. C guy. Right. And uh, they're like, well, we have C work, but it's not at your level. He goes, all right, give me the most, you know, what's the most senior job for that role? Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, all right, here, here it is. He goes, okay, I'll take that job. And, uh, and he did it and he was totally good about it. And everybody used to comment about how manicured his code was. And he goes, well, when 400 people are reading your C code, it needs to clear <laughs> the garbage, you know? Yeah. Very calm, very mild mannered guy. And I said, so what do you want to do? He goes, this. And I was what? You know, in my head, in my 24-year-old head, I was like, what do you mean this? Don't you want to like take over the world? Yeah, said, no, right. this is what I want to do. I said, well, what about when things get rough? Can I, can I count on you? He goes, you can absolutely count on me. You can also count on me to not work more than 40 hours. I was like, well, all right. I, you know, I'm, I'm not about to get in the way of that. I said, but mm-hmm. at the time we were doing stuff by like quota and we had targets to meet and stuff like that. They weren't draconian by any means, but yeah. you know, every once in a while something would slip. I said, can I count on you if any of this stuff slips? He goes, yeah, it won't. And it never did. He, <laughs> he, never, he never broke the bill. His code always passed review. He hit right. every goal, every bug goal that we put out in front of him. And mm-hmm. I don't recall him ever really working more than 40 hours. Right, because he was just that good. And, and mm-hmm. to be honest, some of the, the old timers, as they say, you had to be cleaner. You couldn't have that slop because, you know, performance was so much tighter and you just had to be more disciplined about it and not be like, well, I can just leave this extra stuff in here or whatever. Nobody cares. Right. I got plenty of horsepower here. It's like yeah. you're working with small, small ranges here and you got to make this stuff fit. So you've got to be damn sure and clean and, and know what you're doing and, and not be sloppy and just let CPUs and GPUs yeah. pick it up. So yeah, the good old days. Now yeah. you got C sharp. It don't even, it always works. Right. <laughs> right. I learned a ton from guys like that. I worked with a guy who was, uh, his, his life before games was embedded systems and ATMs. And it was like all done in like machine language or something. Uh, like yeah. metal. And yeah. I worked with another guy who spent his youth at, in Huntsville, Alabama, at NASA JPL. And then also at the, um, at the facility down there in Cocoa Beach doing hmm. basic, like, he said it was rocket science, so it was pretty easy. <laughs> basic, <laughs> basic arc math, you know. But he said that some of the government contracts talk about being clean. You had to write your code in pencil and then hand it to the next engineer. And then they would sort wow. of in pencil. And, you know, your contract was uh, you need eight lines of bug-free code every two weeks or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah, some quota. Yeah. So games, it's always good to talk about like what's been you know, one or two or fewer your, you know, favorite projects to work on. It sounds like we yeah. tapped into a few of these here. If you want to kind of elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've got a couple of, couple of good ones. The NFL Street 3 was a good one. And then mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons, it, it flew under the radar because the first one came out, NFL Street 1, and it was huge. It was a big deal inside the company. It was a big deal outside the company. It was an arcade yeah. game. Those were things all so cool. Right. The second one came out within the same calendar year, which then everybody kind of got really down on it. The reason why it came in within the same calendar year was kind of like 
we all know this, but the user doesn't know this, but there were dates to when we could ship. So the game was done, but it didn't ship until like January 2000, whenever, 2003 or four. Yeah. And the next one shipped that winter because that was the schedule it was supposed to have. But the second one was delayed by like three hurricanes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it had time, but it kind of took a tank. But they had one more coming mm. that was put in charge of that outsource. And, uh, and so it was kind of under the radar. Nobody expected to do very and we were able to do some interesting stuff with the IP. It was really obvious that with the L got to meet a whole lot of players and just have a good time. I also got to do a lot of mocap direction and that also included a lot of stunts because in the street cool. series, they're running up walls and they're hitting each other 20 feet in the air. So I got to do a lot of that stuff directing it. I didn't actually to do any stunts, but I would have, if they asked, I would have strapped on a helmet. <laughs> Give me that mocap suit. I'll wear the balls. I'll put it on. Let me show you. <laughs> right. I can do that. Cool. Yeah, that was a great a great project. I also built really good. Again, we're back to like team chemistry with the, with the studio that developed it, which was Buzz Monkey in Portland, Oregon, a couple miles hmm. south of where I live now. And I still talk to some of these people as well. Just really, really good. I learned a tremendous amount during that during that. Yeah, and it it did pretty good. It did pretty good as far as as what it was supposed to do. IGN's Alternative Sports Game of the Year. Yes. Okay. Go ahead and fact check me on that. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure people are really interested. No, no, uh, it, was, it was a big deal too because it was like showing EA going into that that area that Midway had dominated for so long, right? And that was kind of like a, a big yeah, that's throw right. down. You know, man, whatever happened to all of our all of our amazing arcade sports titles? Yeah, I would cut my little finger off to work on a mutant league football. Oh, right, they it's did. out there. It came out a couple of years ago, or yeah, yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah, throwing all that, yeah. Another really good title I worked on, probably my favorite title of all time, was EA Sports MMA. The goal with hmm. that was to do such a good job in the mixed martial arts space that UFC would realize that they made a mistake in going with THQ. Wow. And within six months of shipping that title, they pulled apart their offer and we got the exclusive with them. Now That's impressive. They- I worked on was had Randy Couture on the cover. It was Strike Force, which was Scott Coker, who now is Bel- who now is the boss of Bellator, and we had Fedor Emelianenko. The particular okay. IP is really important to me, but it was also a hand-picked team at EA Tiburon doing things that they'd never done before, building technology, and it was really, exciting, really intense, and it was really good. It had every reason to go wrong. Everything went right. And uh, it was really lightning in a bottle. And it probably took me about five years after that game was in my past that I realized how, how special that was. It was. Right? Yeah, yeah. To just make that happen uh, again. Yeah. It was, it was intensely good experience. Not the easiest project I ever worked on, but pretty close to one of the easiest projects I ever worked on. And yeah, that and is saying right? something. New IP is always hard. New oh, IP definitely. at EA right. is nearly impossible. But we did pretty yeah. good. I really, really like that one. Those Great. are my two favorites. Those are my two favorites. Mm-hmm. Okay. And obviously Forza, right? You, you talked about doing, working on that and your dad oh, yeah. and racing oh, yeah. and all that. So I'm that sure was that. a really good experience. I think I was, I'm basically at the top of my game and being in charge of a team. So Forza Motorsport six and seven, being able to kind of help guide direct and lay out the plans and clarify the vision for a team. And that team's pretty big. That was really good. And also just, being surrounded by motorsports enthusiasts was important to me. 
And I felt, you know, I felt accepted in that sense, which was really good. Yeah. I've been asked before, like, what game do you always want to work on? Because I've worked on so many different types and, and genres and whatnot, but I, I've never done a driving game and being kind of a driving and motorcycle nerd. Yeah. That was always kind of like a man working like a Gran Turismo or, or Forza or something. Yeah. Yeah. That had to be really satisfying to work on that. Just if you have that passion and that interest for it. It's always neat to see games like that with their, you know, the core, the heart and soul of those games that have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. In Forza Motorsport, there's probably two people, three people that have been involved with that game since the very beginning. And this is just what they do. If this game disappeared off the face of the planet, they'd go work at the mall or something. Cause yeah, right. They, have no like, desire. they would just have no desire to continue without this in their, continue in the industry without this. Yeah. And those, right. those people are, are, um, they should be cherished, you know? Yeah. Right. No, it's, it's in their blood. It's in their veins. And that, that's, that's what their passion is. And that's speaks yeah. to this, you know, success for those series when they have people that are, that passionate about it. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website. Now, yeah. I'm sure you've worked on a game that has had that, but have you ever have you ever worked on a game where nobody really cares about it? Oh, yeah. God, lots of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was the, uh, I I was with a company called Blue Bite and and they did, they were big in Europe and they were known for the Settlers, which was, you know, early God games was pre Age of Empires, post Populist. But um, we did a game um, on the Battle Isle series that was called Incubation Time is Running Out. And, you know, turn-based strategy games, not the easiest sell here in the States. Right. I went over to Germany for a month and I helped, it was kind of a little bit of crisis and helped wrap the game up. And I, I was in a recording studio for two weeks and all the circumstances around it, it turned out, you know, really well. And it was a turn-based strategy game. It was a lot of fun and there was a lot of balanced things you'd have to figure out and strategies. And I think, I think it was like 97, we won turn-based strategy game of the year award, you know, in PC right. Gamer Magazine. And I think we sounds beat, good. We beat XCOM, you know, and I was like, yeah, this is great. What? We sold like 5,000 copies. What? You know, it was just like just a, a commercial failure, you know, and it, it just, it just, it didn't resonate with the audience and marketing budgets and, and maybe just timing and things like that. But, you know, it was a, it was a great game. And the three people that I met that played it, loved it, loved it to death, but nobody, nobody cared. You know, it was just kind of like. So well, that's, a, that's a story about the, like the user, like the, the market not caring. And in fact, I mean, I've got a couple of those myself, that EA, EA MMA title that I worked on, it shipped 2010, which was the worst year for video games, I think is what I read. And the buzz was great and everybody, and the score was great and nobody bought that game. I want to say it was mm-hmm. like yeah. less than a quarter of a million or something like that, which is a, an abject failure as far as EA goes. But we yeah. did get the license ultimately, and it, and it continues to be a strong franchise. But as far as sales go, how did everybody like this spend any money on it? Right. I was thinking more about where everybody's sort of phoning in the job. And here's, mm-hmm. here's where I'm going. Here's where I'm going. Yeah. People want to get into games because of a game that they played, and they want to make that game. And I've been fortunate enough to do that actually more than once. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I want to scare people away from it, but 
there's a little bit of be careful what you wish for because the sausage being made is probably not something <laughs> you want to see. Yeah, I've heard that phrase many times. Yeah. <laughs> and I was actually had an open conversation with a number of people, which is if I go work for motorsport, am I going to hate it? Um, yeah, as right. out, no, I play the game still with my brother online a couple times a month. So, I mean, I still play it all the time. But yes. I could find myself in a position where I, I where I don't care about this game. And I've had a couple of odd games in the past, like when I did the education games, I worked on a Dragon Tales and the Dora the Explorer game. Yeah, it was hard yeah. for me to be really passionate about it. Yep. Yeah. I, I did a Little Bear game that never shipped. There was a Cat Dog game that never shipped. Cat Dog. <laughs> Cat Dog. I went out for the voice the VO session, and yeah, we just had a lot of challenges. It was a small studio and never came out. A Clue Junior game for Hasbro that was not very great, but just had to kind of get behind the IP and you had this little stylus magnifying glass. You'd point at the screen that would just trigger mm-hmm. hotspots. It was pretty, pretty mm-hmm. rudimentary. All kinds of licensed games when I was in QA when, at Viacom that were based on random Nickelodeon licenses. And Oh, some, yeah. Some were great. Some were uh, Real Monsters or something like that. You know, just mm-hmm. kind of your turn to the crank platformers that just get it in a box and get it out by Thanksgiving and yeah. worry, about the, worry about the quality later sometimes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. Uh, I've had, I've seen my share of those. Yeah. How do you get, <laughs> how do you get up in the morning and go to those yeah. jobs? Still do a good, still do good work. Yeah. You just have to kind of detach yourself a little bit from it and just, you remember this is your job and this is your craft and there's, you know, millions of other crappy jobs out there and just kind of be like, well, after I get this under my belt, maybe I'll work in something cooler. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I worked on Abuse and Buddy game. So, <laughs> which was, was cool. good. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was it interesting. But working on it, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched all the episodes twice so I could write all the trivia questions. It was very much a you don't know Jack style game and not the virtual stupidity, which is still very well regarded as an excellent adventure game back in the on the PC days of, uh, you know, old kind of LucasArts style adventure point and click games that virtual stupidity is a classic. Yeah. My game was just like, you got the small team, you got this many months, get it in a box and ship it. And it turned out pretty well, all things considered. And, but yeah, it was, I had to immerse myself in the content. So I just living it, eating and breathing uh, Beavis and Butthead and oh hung God. out with Mike Judge at a recording studio. He was actually, he was that's good cool. Dude. That's cool. Yeah. Everything I've read about him makes me think that he's a, a smart person and it, probably a really interesting conversation. Yeah, he. I think he got taken advantage of, as story goes, from Viacom. So yeah, I think he was like, okay, this is how the game's played. So he, he was very smart with King the Hill and, and how that was structured and syndication and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, right. hats off to him. He's got a few money now and, and he does what he wants and he's got yeah. a big hit with, with uh, Silicon Valley there. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is that one. That's a good show. It hits a little bit close to home every once in a while. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, wait a minute. Was there a camera at work today? What? What just happened? How do they know? My wife goes, "How can you watch this show?" I'm like, "Because it's nice to see other people suffer the way I do." <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. It's not just me. This is cathartic. <laughs> I thought I lived in the world of suffering as uh, by myself. No, other people have experienced this. Right. She's like, Share the these sound like the stories you tell me. I'm like, really? I'm not giving you enough detail. <laughs> right. Here, watch this episode. Yeah. So what are you uh, curious about right now in the industry, right? There's a lot of stuff going on, news about new platforms and 
new tech and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I'm actually most interested in a, it's a conversation that's been going on for a while. I think many years ago it was, do we use data to design games? And right now what I'm noticing happening is many mm-hmm. conversations gear towards, well, really what I'm thinking about is when people say, when people start talking about their game idea as an addictive mechanic, and I always mm-hmm. think like that's the wrong, that's always been the wrong word to use. And it's yeah. never valuable. But I do, do understand that we want to create long-lasting and engaging entertainment. But it needs to be a healthy transaction between the player and the developer. And I'm curious as to, and I think that's the fight happening right now behind the scenes. Some people yeah. want to make cool, interesting experiences. And some people are just driven by the data of, if we make all the buttons red, we'll make more money. So make all the buttons red, driven by the desire to crank up that revenue curve. Yeah. And I saw, I saw a lot of this. Ha- the thing is, is that that's a destructive, ultimately sort of recursive and destructive downward spiral of game design. Um, and I attribute it, mm-hmm. and this is what's interesting to me, and it has more to do, I guess it's the business model, but it has more to do with how do we treat this medium, which is entertainment. In a, it's a special subset of entertainment. Yeah. How do we treat this? How do we build for it? And how do we make great things? If we continue going down the path of designing and programmatically creating the pinch and compulsion, mm-hmm. the natural evolution of that is bad. It's, it's addiction. Yeah. It's just unhealthy transactions. And it's effectively become slot machines. And we, you can see that happen in a couple of places. Yeah. Yeah. On the other side, it is grand, enthralling, and engaging entertainment in a media that can't be replicated anywhere. Right. Which one are we going to do? Which one will we choose? If games continue to get too expensive, kind of like what we were talking about before with budgets, well, they need to cost more money too. Mm -hmm. So there's an easy way to get more money. And we've seen, and we've seen certain companies do that, right? right? Everybody knows that there's a certain thing that we can do uh, let's just use a stupid example of we'll turn we'll turn all the buttons red and we know that people click on red buttons more so we'll make the red buttons more money so people will spend more money when they click on red buttons that we know they're going to click on boom mm-hmm. it is undeniable truth that this happens right okay well it never works all the time eventually the users fatigue or mm-hmm. they run out of money and it doesn't work anymore so you have to find another one and you find another one And I think there's the cannibalization here of maybe you can make this work over a long period of time, Mm -hmm. but I think certain games will scare people away from games. Yeah. On the other side of it is things like God of War, Mm Spider-Man, plenty of games that are, that still work. And that's what I'm interested. I'm trying to find out who's going to win. Now, I think that most people on a game team just want to make cool stuff, entertain people and make them happy. And Mm -hmm. most of those people are totally okay saying, by the way, my effort costs a little bit of money. You should, you know, I'm going to charge for it. Yeah. But there is a subset of people inside those rooms that tend to say, well, here's how we're going to create the pinch. Here's how we're going to, right. here's how we're going to create a compulsion loop. You know, there's a difference between compulsion and, comp- and compelling, mm-hmm. you know, something that's interesting and I want to engage with it more. That's a healthy transaction compulsion. You're starting to take advantage of, you're starting to take advantage yeah. of people. Well, yeah. And that gets in where, there's, you know, using data science and, and product managers and sometimes mm-hmm. take it too far and they start, they start figuring out ways to just 
pinch people more and figure out, you know, you systematize people into different avatars and you figure out areas that they're going to react to. And then when they do this thing, then we can throw this thing at them and then we do this, you know, fake sale or whatever it is. And it just, it starts getting pretty slippery slope there. And yeah, again, everyone's got to make money and this has to be a business, but you you have to watch that because yeah, there are people that, that have impulse control issues and there are people that you're taking advantage of and can hide behind, well, uh, it's free will and everybody can do what they want. But there are ways, it's much more of a science now to push people's buttons in inappropriate ways and, and squeeze from them than, than it used to be where it was just a designer's yes. imagination. Now there's armies of data and data analysts and uh, data scientists and things going on behind the scenes. It's yeah, creepy. I believe in humans. I'm fairly optimistic. I think we'll find the right we'll we'll find the right way through, but I think we'll have to learn some pretty terrible lessons. What potential threats do you see to the game industry and, and what about the opportunities? And we kind of tapped on that a little bit before, but you know, metrics, guys. Yeah. Yeah, those are that's what are you curious about and what yeah. are the threats? I'm curious about the threat to I yeah, that's really how how I'm positioning my myself right now. I'm, I'm curious about the threat that is a really good word for it. I can't think about it right now, but sort of nefarious methods yeah. of earning money mm-hmm. and how we will find ourselves to a more righteous path of creating great entertainment that people are you know, happy to pay for. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other directions to go, but this is the one that I think is most conflicting to me while I work. I spend a lot of time saying, let's focus on the great product and then we'll focus on creating a hobby. You know, I don't want an addiction. I want a hobby. I want somebody that's so excited about the story and the gameplay and the, and the interesting consequences and actions that somebody can make in this yeah. game that they're willing to come back and they're willing to spend a little bit more money for whether it's a cosmetic thing or whether it's a subscription to play for more experiences. Mm-hmm. I yeah, think that, right. It's, not, it's about loot boxes, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, the loot box conversation that bothers me too, because mm-hmm. in a sense, there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's a version of a loot box. It's completely fine. Right. But lucky dip, right. As they call it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You'd be fine with it. But when you're, when your game is gated by a loot box and it becomes harder or impossible to experience the game as envisioned without landing on the right roll of the dice, because mm-hmm. then it gets really weird. And then if you're going to, put a pinch in for money right there. Oh, what a mess. Right. What, right. And I think this stuff comes from base level, lowest common denominator request from a business objective kind of, kind of spot with no nuance given to it. So a business says, Hey, you know why we make games? We make games to make money. You should make money. How do you design a game that makes money? Well, I worked, I worked on this game. This was one of, this was like Tiger Woods uh, 12 or something. You'd hit the splash screen and then the very, you hit the A button to press start on the splash screen. And the very next pop-up was buy these courses for 99 cents a whole. That is somebody (laughs) designing to the lowest common denominator and the most optimized version of getting money from the user. Right. It's just panhandling. Yeah. It's shaking the can right out of the gate. Exactly. So this is also why I think that the ultimate evolution of this style of making games becomes slots. Hmm. Put a dollar in and maybe, you know, and get some cool noises, which tangentially is an interesting sort of evolution of the 
mechanics that people are interested in over time. A kid's favorite game early on is mostly random based, like shoots and ladders, mm-hmm. because every kid has a chance to win no matter what the skill is. Now you go through life wrestling and playing football and then chess and poker, but at the end, you're back to basically shoots and ladders because everybody has a chance to win. The right. only addition is something that you've spent 70 years putting a value on, which is your dollar. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like this is the wrong direction. We don't want to go that way. We want to go in the direction of, you know. Experiences Marvel and entertainment. Yeah. Right. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Thoughts on AR and VR. What do you, what do you think about that stuff right now? And XR, as, as they call it. Yeah. I guess... I'm pretty pessimistic about it. I think it's interesting. I think it's fun to look at. It's fun to show off. It's um, just wildly out of position to have a reasonable place in a family entertainment. I know it's better than it was, but it still makes people sick. It's catastrophically expensive. How much is the, is the, um, the what was the one that just came out? Was it the Oculus something? Uh, well, like I mean, the virus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely... Well, the Oculus, the Quest just came out, but that's that's, right. that's more of a two ninety nine, three ninety nine price point, and and that's nice too because you don't have to have the three thousand dollar computer to run it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but don't you need to? Ha- but don't you need to have the controllers and stuff like that, and the finger tracking wrist bracelet controllers? Anyway, yeah, I still think it's too expensive for what you get a machine that plays a couple of short a couple of short games, and that might make you sick when you could have an Xbox one and a live account and still get, you know, thousands yeah. of, I think it, when I saw it at ITSEC back in 2012, when they were using the, like a HoloLens or another AR sort of thing to, to help me change the brakes on a Humvee. That mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Like I get that. But right. as far as, um, as far as something that's home-based entertainment, I think it's way far away. Mm-hmm. Like that's I said, it. a lot of things I always think about like the Wii. The Wii was a mm-hmm. pretty well positioned thing. What was it like $99? So you could go buy it and like play a couple of things and you weren't really, you know, trying to, you weren't shucking yeah. out money and your kids were still going to eat. Right. But you could, um, you could show it to other kids, people your age or your parents and everybody kind of got the mechanic really quickly. It was easy to grok. Yeah. And you could do it together. You could right. do it. It was a social element. Right. Yep, it was social and uh, you could, you know, and the best thing about it was that you could play, it was easy to play a Wii game with a beer in your hand while hanging out with friends. Right. These are things that the, that the AR and VR just doesn't, doesn't really do right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's a fair argument. I think the price is going down. It always has felt to me very like hardcore hobbyist with, you know, the $4,000 computer and then the $700 Vive and all that kind of stuff. And then the, the space to, to assemble it. What's interesting more to me more is the quest and when they're, shrinking the form factor and they're not having that requirement with the the computer and having cameras and cables and all these kind of yeah. barriers of entry that, yeah, you don't get that visual fidelity that you do on the Vive, but you also don't have those barriers and costs and, and headaches of those kind of things. So yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see where it goes. I will say that location based entertainment if you can do something that makes me feel okay about putting somebody else's sweaty vibe on my head <laughs> that would probably work out really well i just got back from disney world and we did harry potter and the gringotts ride is amazing and it's 3d and uh, you're on a roller coaster and 
I could imagine how it would only be better with an AR sort of experience on it as well. That I think might work really well. There you go. Cool. <laughs> what about, I always got to ask this, a, a funnier odd story from working in the game industry. I'm sure you've got <laughs> days of stories. I think of the first ones that come to mind are actually not, they're sort of tangential to being in the game industry. Okay. I wish I could come up with a couple of stories when I was thinking, I asked this question before and I, and I was like, all right, I need to, I don't, there's a story, there's a couple of stories I could tell, but I want one that's about games. And, and uh, most of my funny stories about games are kind of, what's the word when something's like out of time, acronym, ac- you know, like it's out. Of, anyway, it's because I've worked in games for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe if there's a guy that, if there's some kid just gets out of school and he started his, started his first game job this year, last year, mm-hmm. he's not going to, nobody's going to get this. But when we had to press green discs at the studio, we had to make sure that we had them pressed in time to send them to the to the publisher. So green discs were for Microsoft, obviously. Right. And um, there was a time when we sent one and it had a on the disc error and we got the phone call that mm-hmm. we wouldn't meet our ship date. I think this was for NCAA because the game that we tested and was fine didn't work at Microsoft and they therefore couldn't press the disc. Right. So the option was to, this was like two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. The option was to burn a disc right there, which in those days took like 16 hours. Right. And you had to do a batch of them, right? Yeah. Yep. Doing a, and dur- yeah, you had to send like two of them at a time or something like that. But during that time, we scoured the studio, found a guy that uh, probably had, <laughs> single man with no next of kin (laughs) and we uh, bought him a plane ticket. Yep. We bought him a plane ticket and uh, put the disc in it and sent him to Microsoft so that NCAA could come out on time. (laughs) So he flew from Orlando to to Microsoft, Orlando to Seattle, drove to the Microsoft where there was somebody from Xbox waiting for him, took the disc out of his pocket, he turned around and he drove right back to the airport and flew back home. Dude, I'm having flashbacks because I have two stories that are pretty much identical to that. And and there was an MK that we had to get to Sony Europe to make the date. And it was right up to the wire. Mm -hmm. And it was literally put someone on a plane to London (laughs) to make the date is going to be faster than the courier. And we have to make the date. But get this, it it gets weirder because we had a person on the flight and then as they were still in the air, we found another error that we had to fix and burn more oh. discs. And we, we had to signal Leanne to stop when she was landing to not go to Sony because we had another person on another flight behind her flying out to the UK with the actual real, real discs, not the real discs she had. But <laughs> And I think that was Samuel was flying. So, you know, it was like that little, just that madness back when you had to have stuff on discs versus just doing an upload. Was there uh, cell phones? Yeah, cell phones were out. So, but, you know, it was in the air early 2000s. So she didn't know until she landed and had like 9,000 voicemails, like, do not go to Sony, don't go to Sony, don't go to Sony. Samuel's oh, got Lord, more discs. Oh, Abort, abort mission, abort ripcord, ripcord. <laughs> and then there was another time I had to, I hand delivered in my Subaru RS 2.5 liter pre WRX yes. to make the O'Hare FedEx before 10 o'clock with the discs oh. from Microsoft. Yeah, and I was like, I was in the airport. Well, I, I was in the parking lot. I'm revving the engine. This guy, Brian LeBaron, ran out with the disc. We had the FedEx package and I was 
breaking many laws in the Subaru that night to make it to the airport to catch the 10 o'clock flight so the discs would get out there on time. And I just remember thinking, man, I'm going to get a reckless driving if, if I get pulled over here. And, and I was pulling stuff you know, straight out of Diva Queen movie or something, just flying in my Subaru down I-90, breaking all kinds of laws <laughs> to get to that airport and throw those discs before they shut the door at the FedEx. And, that is um, amazing. That's, the airport makes that story really amazing. Yeah, because it was I actually... FedEx hub was about five miles away from the hypnotics office. And I knew that if I was there after hours, I could go to the back door. And I started to know <laughs> those guys by me. And like, to smoke, I was, like, Hey Bill, I got discs. I Let's would go. go into the back loading dock and I would hand them the disc that was already, <laughs> that was a, that was fully regular thing to do. Right. Yeah. You had the, the you bypassed the line with the velvet rope and you could just <laughs> Oh preempt and, and beat the, the cutoff because you knew Bill and he was out there smoking a cigarette at exactly right. There were 10, so 10. Many things that we just wouldn't do these days. Like uh, we submitted discs with known errors to certification so that we would get the 24 or 48 hour turnaround time to keep uh, working. I've done right. that. I've done that. Yeah. It, like at the time I was like, Oh, okay, that's normal. Now I'm thinking about it. And of course, since I spent some time at Microsoft, I'm like, you assholes. <laughs> <laughs> there was a game we submitted once knowing full well it was never going to pass. And we were terrified that it would pass. And it, and it didn't pass, but it bought us more time. And then we resubmitted this. They're like, this is a gig bigger. <laughs> yeah, we just fixed a few things. I added a couple of levels and a couple of more fighters. And, uh, you know, and they're like, what? And like, yeah, yeah, don't just... Is that thing fixed though, right? We can, we, we can release now? It's totally good. It's, it's totally it, good. You added a gig. What? What? <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Well, on the uh, Game Boy SP, they were going to do a 14 meg cart. I think they actually did a 14 meg cart, but nobody used it. But we built the game for this 14 meg and then somebody realized how much it was going to cost. Uh, and at the end, they said, well, you got to cut it down to seven. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to cut it in half? <laughs> Sorry, sound guys. <laughs> I really, I really did just remove half of the levels. I kept the first one and the last one, and then pulled like every third one out or something like that. Ah, oh, wow! Because, it, because they all had different art tile sets and stuff. <laughs> right. It's a lot more expensive megwise, and yeah, yeah. That, that's that's back when yeah, when size made it big difference. So, yeah, especially the cartridges and, and manufacturing costs and all that kind of stuff. Oh. And it just, I mean, I don't even, I mean, certainly that stuff still happens, but it's almost an afterthought because nearly everybody's plugged into the internet. So we know we're going to get a patch in there, right? but you try so hard because you don't want this to happen. And I'd say that throughout my career, I've done a really good job about this. Like, let's be really good. Not mm -hmm. necessarily because there are people without the internet. That is definitely a thing. But also because when you plug this thing into your into your console and you get home or you download it off the internet and you're like, all right, I'll be back in 20 minutes. You want to play that game. Right. Don't make that, absolute garbage where we need to like... 60 gig get download for patch. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that was the vision of, of consoles because that was always a piece, the PC thing, right? Like you mm -hmm. never you never played the game out of the box. First thing you did was install the update and consoles didn't want to do that. They wanted to make a seamless, you know, mm -hmm. out-of-box experience. And on cartridges, obviously, you yeah. could not do that. So oh, yeah. once the internet became more ubiquitous on consoles, then it started like, hey, we have a little update here. And then it turned into just buying more time. And then oh, yeah, yeah, now like all the games that come out, it's just like, <laughs> might as well go paint a house or something while I'm waiting for this upload to 
to finish or download. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm having fun telling stories about the weird things we used to do to get that. Uh, we had a guy who flew down to Mexico to make sure that the discs being pressed onto uh-huh. it on for the game. Uh, the first run of that pallet of discs in Mexico right. was on a truck with produce on it. He spent <laughs> walked around looking for the lettuce truck, threw it on there so it would be expedited through customs so that it could make it to distribution centers. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the discs were pressed in, in Mexico and then they had to come with with the vegetables. Yes. Yeah. Because wow. otherwise otherwise there was like uh, who knows how long it's gonna take because it's a non perishable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Best part about this story is that this guy used to be an art director for a claim and uh, he goes, don't worry, I've done this before. (laughs) (laughs) We used to do this in New York all the time. I got this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, it's common industry practice. What what do you mean? Yeah. I got to go check the discs and fight the, fight off the lettuce. Okay. (laughs) That's the stuff. You talk about a GDC. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's 2 a.m. And I'll take another doers. And let me tell you this story about this. <laughs> <laughs> what about the games you're, uh, you're playing right now that you're excited about? That I'm excited about. Well, I am excited about Battlefront 2 because I'm timely in my video game playing habits, if nothing. <laughs> when did that game come out? Like two years ago? Right. I love the dice battlefield battlefront games. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm playing battlefront two with my daughter. Who's a huge star for star Wars fan. She's 11 and she's about as she's almost as good as I am now, which low Uh-oh. bar don't, don't get me wrong, low bar, but I don't think I was ready for that. <laughs> right. At, at 11. Yeah. Like, at 11. Damn, exactly. Man. What else am I playing? I do tend to lag behind kind of back to our previous conversation about patches. I always give about, two weeks for a game mm-hmm. that just comes out to go ahead and get like the real patch. Right. Cause you get the one that the developers wanted to get you. And then you got to wait a week for them to figure out what they forgot. And then you get it the next week. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. I've been um, lately on Friday nights. I've got an Xbox club with all my old game dev. It's basically old game dev friends club. And it's a bunch of people that I used to work with. Cool. And the goal is just to play multiplayer games you never really want to play with random people. You want to play with friends of yours. Yeah, that's what <laughs> multiplayer is all about, who you play with, right? That, that's, yeah, that's exactly. The- so we cycled through a bunch of games, and I found a couple that were pretty. I, I played Sea of Thieves and thought, oh, you know, that's fine. But when you play it with a group of people, it's a completely different game, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I had Chris Johnson on uh, recently, and he was just talking about how, he, how much he loves that game with a, a group of friends he plays with all the time and just what, it, yeah. what experience it is when you play with people you in a regular you know pattern cadence yeah it's so good i mean i think the game like the the game cadence changes for sure but also also the mechanics change as well because now you can do things that you otherwise couldn't do i'll mm-hmm. go back to battlefront everybody plays as a lone wolf but if you really want to like conquer that game you need to have a team that plays their position and they all play their role and you can pretty much walk through the game and it feels really powerful because you've got everybody doing their job. Yeah. Which is actually a pretty good analogy for real life. When everybody's as an expert at what they do and they're allowed to do their job, then good things happen. Right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and you got producers like getting crap out of the way for them and let them do their thing, right? It's ex- yep. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. What about um, 
anything I should have asked you about, but didn't. My go-to is my, uh, is my, my little mini rant is I hate the way the game industry handles titles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I feel like, uh, especially in the role of producer, many people show up to that role and have different expectations of what it is. And mm-hmm. I, want, I want people to know the history of it and then acknowledge that there's different permutations of it. Right. And then also to say, oh, you might not be class A producer, you're class B producer. And then maybe we can have a conversation about whether it's okay to change the titles. Yeah. No, you're right. Because there are like, especially for that title, there's such a range of experience and lack of experience and what the day-to-day is and what it isn't. And, you know, does it skew more on the dev side or the publishing side or on the tech side or the art side, you can sometimes earn a bad reputation because people are like, well, I worked with this one producer once and they were horrible and he was horrible. So all producers are horrible. It's like, well, no, exactly. Yeah. That's one one data point. And (laughs) there are all kinds of people that are very good at it. And, and unfortunately there are enough that can also give the discipline a bad reputation. So, yeah. Oh yeah. I've been at places where the executive producer is uh, completely unabated as far as control. And then I've also been at places where producers are effectively clerks. You know, I asked once in a group, uh, hey, what's the most important job of a producer? And uh, somebody said to uh, order dinner. And I thought, yep. that, that's a very important job. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's yeah. up there in the top five. <laughs> <laughs> but um, boy, I hope that's not, I, don't, <laughs> I hope that's not the, the, one, the one thing that you remember your producers being good for. No, I remember an uh, ineffective producer, at least, as I was told, somebody once said, hey, Joe, your producer, right? And that's I'm making up that name. I was like, yeah, why don't you go produce me some coffee? And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> I think that we run, we run the risk also of over-titling them. Like I feel like assistants and associates have gone away. And now, at least here where I'm based, mm-hmm. I was getting people with less than a year or even less than two years experience with one game under their belt, mm-hmm. not even from beginning to end, applying to producer and senior producer roles. And I thought, uh-huh. wow, that's, wow. That's, not, that's not what I'm looking for. We're, now it's yeah. become harder for me to find, to find the right person to fill the role. Mm-hmm. And that person might have been the right person to fit the associate producer role I've got open, mm-hmm. but they spent a year as a full producer working on some title. What are they going to, you know, how, yeah. how, what kind of self-awareness are they going to have to come to the table with saying, all right, I get it. I'm an, I'm an associate producer in this place. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, yeah, it's complicated. And then there'll be the people that are like, if I, this happened at EA, I was always looking for a producer that was like an entrepreneur, a business owner, a product owner, understood technology, art, marketing, innovation, design, that kind of needed that kind of person. That's what a producer is at EA to be able to hold departments accountable and kind of go with it. Yeah. I was getting people applying to that role that were project managers. Again, mm-hmm. really important, but you know, people that could kind of turn the process of making game into something more methodical and mathematical. That wasn't what I was looking for either. Yeah. But because the title has got such a wide net to it, mm-hmm. it makes finding the right person really difficult. Yeah. I think that's, a, I think that's, it's weird because I think people have maligned that role for some reason. And I think part of it's because unprepared people were given that job. Mm-hmm. So they weren't PMP certified, agile certified, scrum certified, six Sigma project managers. They mm-hmm. were sort of people with a lot of hustle and can use Microsoft project. You know, I don't know. 
they get this, <laughs> they get this job and then they basically don't do well uh, right. because they haven't been trained in this expertise. And mm-hmm. then people have a bad feeling in their mouth, bad taste in their mouth for what producers are. So then they just become clerks where, you know, mm-hmm. And if you're a producer and you're, and you're doing one of two things, you're doing it wrong, right? If you're, if you're a producer and your job is basically effectively to walk around and ask people if they're done yet, you're not helping. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> at the very I'm least. I'm not done yet. I'm not going to be done in an hour if you come back and ask me again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> at least, at the very least, consolidate your questions to once a day. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> if that's what your job yeah. is. Just walk around and nag people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not work and, well. And if your job is to sort of not add clarity, <laughs> you're also missing the missing the mark, you know? Right. Games are complicated and there's a lot of people involved. If anything you're doing is complicated, is making things more complicated, as a producer, you're definitely doing things wrong. If you walk away and people are saying, I don't know, or I don't understand. Right. You're oh, yeah, definitely yeah. in the wrong place. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're pointing them in different directions and people are like, which way's up, which way's down. I don't know what the person wants. Yeah. Why is it, why are we doing this? Yeah. That yeah. not setting clear objectives. Yeah. That creating confusion. That, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> Shame on you who do that. That's right. Don't do that. If you, if you do that, if you find you're doing that, call me, like, shoot me <laughs> find me on LinkedIn. Right. I've actually go. been enjoying every once in a while. I used to do a lot more of it. I would do more of it these days, but mm-hmm. I've been enjoying speaking and then some of the follow-up conversations. And by and large, it's a it's an intelligent discourse on what's the best way for me to do my job. And I always start with, what does your boss want you to do? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it could be different. You know? Right. What's the baseline <laughs> right. here? What, what are the he expectations? Wants, exactly. All right. He wants a schedule. He wants status. He wants, you know, all right, let's or, or her, I guess, you know, right. your job is to produce this thing. All right, let's talk about the best way to do that. Inevitably, it's always has to do with people, mm-hmm. which is always an important thing to kind of get your head around. But I, I enjoy kind of that, those kind of conversations that come to me through any talk that I've given or even sort of cold calls through LinkedIn or Twitter and stuff like that. That's a good point about titles. Yeah, it is such a man. It, people's titles are titles and what their skill sets are. It's crazy. It, uh, yeah, yeah. All and, over the place. It's got, especially in the production path, it's such a mess. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And I spent six months interviewing and I just finally, I had like this boilerplate of tell me exactly what you need right now from this person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I would say nearly every interview was something different. And then there are the re- really weird hangups where, oh, what's the, what's the title? Director of production. Oh, okay. What do they do? Um, they direct production, blah, 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 blah. Well, it sounds like an EP. Oh, well, we wouldn't use that title. Well, why not? Well, because an EP makes people think that they're in charge. You just described me a game or a job that is effectively in charge. Why is that? Why are we different? Oh, well, yeah. this person doesn't have anybody reporting to them, so they can't really be in charge of anything. <laughs> uh, what? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, this was a startup that they were, um, they were a bunch of artists and designers trying to make a game. And mm-hmm. so they were, they were coming out the gate trying to neuter a producer. And I'm like, all right, guys. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they make this work and stuff. And I said, yeah. I don't want to, they can't have any authority over me because my art will be done when it's done. I'll write code when I feel inspired. Yeah. I worked with this old timer from uh, Disney World 
uh, worked for the animation there, worked on like Brother Bear and Mulan and Little Mermaid. Like it, one of his first jobs was the Lion King. Like he goes back. Wow. And uh, he was an art director and he was really smart, really good. And uh, he would, comes in, into my office. He's like, hey, what do you think of this? And he shows me this thing. I'm like, oh, it's pretty good. He goes, do you think it's done? I'm like, uh, yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he goes, okay, good. I'm like, hey, what was this about? He goes, I learned this a long time ago at Disney. It takes two people to do great art. I'm like, yeah, collaboration. He goes, no, one person to do it, another person to tell that person when he's done. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. Yeah. I'm no. off to happy hour. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> My job is done. I'm done here for the day. <laughs> As an ex illustrator, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, yeah. I've got the notes in front of you, your Twitter handle, which I'll, I'll include in the show notes. My Twitter handle yeah. is uh, Vigilant Rex. Okay. I'm basically Vigilant Rex everywhere. I've tried to okay. keep it simple because my, my brain likes simple. It's one, okay. of the, uh, one of the hallmarks of a great producer, I think, is oversimplification. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, it's, don't add confusion, just simplify it. If I have That's this right. tagline, people will know where to find me. Okay. Then you're obviously on LinkedIn too because yes. yeah, yeah, to yeah. be on the LinkedIn. Yeah, for sure. Right. Awesome. I... Really appreciate this conversation tonight, Nick. I think there's been Likewise. a lot of good, good stuff that has came out of this. And yeah, I encourage people to reach out and check out Nick's games, follow him on Twitter. And um, yeah. Yeah. Let's be friends and talk about games. It's like my favorite thing. Cool. Well, one of, one of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. Likewise. Appreciate it. Yeah. No, that's great. I think we got some good stuff in here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website gamedevadvice.com I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas. Since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care.